0: Uh, I'd like to start this morning just with a couple of questions. First is this How can we share our faith more effectively with people who have a different outlook on life from us, who have a different worldview, a kind of alternative belief system? And the second question is related and connected, similar. How do we communicate Jesus? And the message of Jesus more effectively with those and to those who are not yet Christians. In these next kind of maybe 20, 25 minutes, I hope we might discover some answers to those questions or those kind of questions because taking us right back to Acts chapter 1 and to our very first week of this series, we made the point that if we follow Jesus, and and I recognize and accept that that's probably the vast majority of people in this room, But if we follow Jesus, then we are his empowered witnesses to our world and for our world. That's the way it works. It's through us and via us that others, friends, colleagues, hear and are confronted with the good news of Jesus or not. Last week, as, uh, as part of our reading of Acts 16, we, we tracked Paul's mission trip to Philippi. Uh, and that led him to a highly significant and life-changing encounter with an affluent businesswoman called Lydia. And shortly after that divine encounter, Paul was arrested and thrown into prison. And, and we'll come back to why at a later date. But once he was released, he continued on what seems to have been a bit of a city-wide tour, which took in Thessalonica and Bera and Athens and and Corinth. And Paul's input and his impact in each of those urban environments was notable, really was. But this morning, I specifically want to look at his experience in what was considered to be the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire at that time, a city called Athens. And we read about his visit there in Acts chapter 17 and verses 16 through to 34. It's page 1113 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, can I invite you to stand with me for the public reading of God's word? And we're going to discover what happened to Paul and with Paul in Athens. So please stand with me. Incidentally, we we did look at these verses on a Sunday evening back in September 2011. And so a lot or some of what I'm going to share might be familiar to anyone who was there. We have called our current teaching series Up In and Out. I know I'm keeping you standing for longer, just hang in there. We've called our, our current teaching series Up In and Out. And this incident that we're about to read provides some real insight and great advice regarding that out-dimension, all about our relationships and engagement with those who are not yet Christians, especially those who kind of tend towards a more philosophical outlook on life and the universe and everything. Sounds like a great title for a book. So let's read these verses together. While Paul was waiting for them, that's his kind of traveling companions... They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked uh, carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though God is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or image, uh, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we'd like to hear you again on this. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul, and believed. Grab a seat. That uh, that text is seen by many to provide a brilliant example of cross-cultural engagement, kind of cross-cultural communication and witness. Paul's approach in Athens, which was a city of culture and a city that had a particular culture, Paul's approach there is fascinating. But when we talk about or when we refer to culture, what do we mean? Let's get a bit of feedback, okay? Whenever whenever you hear that term, so for example, youth culture, French culture, local culture, what kind of thoughts come to your mind whenever you hear the term culture? Feedback time. Sorry? Group behavior. Group behavior. Anyone else? Yeah. The arts. Thank you, John. Yep, the arts. Faith. Food. That's how you're feeling. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry, it won't be long. Food. Anything else when you think of culture? The way people think. The way people think. Worldview. A worldview. Thanks, Elizabeth. Whenever missionaries... Are preparing to head off into a different cultural context. Their training will involve and include an intentional attempt to gain a better understanding and appreciation of that particular culture that they are about to enter into. So for example, they will consider how do people behave in that place and in that environment. What's important the people there? What what, what do they value? What do they hold dear? How do people think? What influences people in that culture? Who influences people? What do people read? How do people learn? What music do people listen to? What is perceived as wisdom in that culture, and who dispenses it? In other words, and, and this is a very simple and a very raw definition, of culture. It's the way we do things around here. And the reason that this is so important to understand and to be sensitive about is because it enables you, if if you understand culture and a particular people's culture, it enables you to make connections, interact, and communicate more intelligently, more sensitively and more appropriately. Now, this, I know, is a massive subject. But as we retrace Paul's steps in Acts 17, I want you to hold on to some of those thoughts. And let's see, well, what can we learn from Paul's actions in this particular culture and his reactions that might help us, and here's, here's what we're trying to do, to engage more effectively, discuss our faith more relevantly, Share Jesus more passionately. So let's look at the story. Paul arrives in this city. And he gets there before his friends. And he's got time to kill. And so as he waits for them, he takes a walk around the city. And he's struck. He's struck by the sheer volume of idols, objects of worship that kind of litter. And are located all over the place. But "struck" may be too tame a word because according to verse 16, you'll see he, he was actually greatly distressed. Deeply troubled by what he saw. And apparently that phrase also implies there was an element of anger as he walked around. But he didn't lose it. He didn't rant and rave. He didn't point the finger or begin tearing down and defacing these idols. Instead, although he was annoyed and deeply troubled and disturbed, he acted with restraint and respect. And that in itself is such an important lesson for us 2,000 years later. Because whenever we as Christians recognize that people today do cram their lives with alternative objects of worship and trinket God's, and false idols. Yes, that should distress us. I really hope it does. It should trouble us. But how we respond is then critical. Respect and restraint are key values and attitudes in our interactions with our neighbors and our colleagues and our society in general as we discuss our faith. Sadly, so many people Have experienced the other approach, the ranting and raving. And so, although Paul is deeply distressed, we read in verse 17, and I love this, he reasons with people. But what's fascinating is that he talks to different people in different settings. And so, whenever he finds himself in a religious place, in a synagogue, He reasons with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks that he finds there. But Paul's connection and dialogue with people regarding spiritual issues is not restricted to what is a relatively safe place. Paul was also willing and keen to reason with people in the marketplace on a day-by-day basis. And again, at a very simple level, there's another classic challenge here because talking about our faith and talking about what really matters should not be confined and contained to a church environment or to one day a week or to those who are naturally sympathetic, although that is great. It also is vital that our reasoning and our sharing and our discussing spills over. It spills out into our day-to-day lives wherever we find ourselves and whatever company we're in. And within this particular marketplace in Athens, which according to many was the hub of Athenian life, the main public space in the city, philosophers, we we read, would meet here in the marketplace and they would reflect on life and the meaning of life and the way of life. And there were two groups in particular who engaged with Paul, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And each of them had their own understanding of the life and of universe, and of what was important. Now, when I say they engaged, that's not entirely right. Look at verse 18. It says they actually began a dispute with Paul. Plus you sense that they were quite unimpressed with him. They weren't too impressed with his reasoning. What is this babbler trying to say to us? Now that isn't exactly a complimentary comment in any cultural context. And it turns out, according to the end of verse 18, that what Paul was babbling about or preaching about was Jesus and the resurrection, which was brave and it was important. And here's the challenge. As Christ's empowered witnesses which is what every single follower of Jesus is. This is still our responsibility and calling, to share Jesus, to speak about the fact that he is alive and has a call on people's lives. But you see, whenever you're talking to people with a different worldview, your colleagues in work the people who sit beside you tomorrow in university. Then the risk or likelihood of misunderstanding is always possible. And that's what happened to Paul. Some people thought, listen, this guy seems to be advocating foreign gods. Sometimes I think one of the reasons we are rather reluctant to share our faith and talk about Jesus is, many of us, self-included, have a deep fear about being misunderstood. But the fact is, it's always gonna be a risk we take or run. We are increasingly surrounded with people or by people who have a radically different worldview. And therefore, whatever you present Jesus, whether you present his life, his death, his resurrection, all of the above, and why any of those might be important, it's highly likely that people are gonna struggle to get what you're saying. And so they may even say to you, well, they'll definitely think, what is he or she rattling on about? But does that mean we stop sharing whenever we get the chance or the opportunity arises? These philosophers may have been somewhat dismissive, but, but there's something about what Paul has said that's kind of intrigued them. And so, they take Paul to a meeting of the Areopagus, great word, and, which is just a Greek council meeting, and they say, okay, here's your opportunity to kind of further explain what this is that you're babbling on about. May we know, verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. And so although to quote verse 20, they think Paul's ideas are strange, and people will think not only maybe our ideas are strange, but we're strange. But these philosophers are clearly keen to, to know more. They're curious. And so Paul begins to speak. And in the next 10 verses, we read what seems to be this carefully crafted address, which has been described as a model of sensitive, but forthright confrontation of an intellectual audience with the claims of the gospel. A, s- a model of sensitive, but forthright confrontation of an intellectual audience with the claims of the gospel. And I am aware that in Windsor, for many people sitting here, that kind of captures the places that you work in. They are centers of, where people are incredibly intellectual. And like to think things through and reason things through. So here is a model on how to address people in that environment. And so what happens? Paul starts with what appears to be a kind of positive, almost supportive comment. And so he says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. So what does Paul do? He starts by affirming their openness. He commends the fact that they're on a spiritual quest, that they're keen to discover more. And And for Paul and for any of us, that's clever. Start by affirming people. Many people today are spiritually hungry and thirsty, searching, searching in all kinds of different places, yes. But many, many people, when you strip it all down, are actually hungry and searching for something and Paul affirms that. And then he states a fact. He says, listen, I've seen your objects of worship, which includes that rather strange altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And then what Paul does is he sticks his neck out and he says, do you know what I'm about to do? I'm gonna reveal the identity of this unknown God. Now, for people who, according to verse 21, spent their days doing nothing but listening to the latest ideas. This created an air of expectation and anticipation. This man is about to uncover a mystery. He's about to solve a riddle. He's about to explain and expose a hidden secret. And so what Paul has done here is he has drawn people in. Again, so clever. And then he goes on to identify this unknown God. And in the space in this, this is just brilliant. But in the space of a few sentences and phrases, he paints this graphic and enlightening picture of God. He describes his activity and his character in such a succinct way. So he says this, verse 24. He is the creator of the universe, the cosmos, everything in it. This all-knowing God, first thing you need to know, he's the creator God. Secondly, in verse 24, again, he is the uncontainable God. He's not confined to buildings that are made by human hands. He's not confined to man-made temples. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking a bit of a side swipe at their idols, But what Paul says is, listen, see this unknown God. He's uncontainable. Don't box him. Don't confine him. Don't constrain him. And we're going to be thinking about that this evening, actually, as we pick up on the story of David. The third thing Paul says is, he is the self-sufficient God. Verse 25, this God doesn't need anything. Nothing. Totally self-sufficient. Fourthly, verse twenty. He is the very source of life. He gives all men breath. He gives all men life and everything else. He's the life-giving God. And Paul then clarifies how from one man, God made every nation of men, and he provided for them, and he did this. Why did God do that? You've ever wondered, why did God create man? Here's the answer in Acts 17. So that humanity would seek him and reach out to him. Plus, as Paul makes clear, and, and, and this, this is an incredible truth, end of verse 27. I tried to emphasize it as I was reading it. And, and if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God is not far from any one of us, or any one of your colleagues, or any one of your family, or any one of your friends. God is not far from any one of them. He is the accessible God. This is a God who's within reach. This is a God who's knowable. This is a God who's personal, not like these idols, This is a God who wants to be known, who wants to know you. And Paul then injects a quote from their poets, verse 28, which is a stroke of genius, because that keeps them connected and it lets them know here is someone who's got an understanding of our culture. Here is someone who's got an awareness of our culture. Here is someone who's prepared to make points of contact. And for us today, in our context, this is such an important practice, an aspect of uh, our evangelism. Make points of contact. Quote songs, films, whatever. Quote these things. Connect with people where they are. And Paul then challenges them. And then maybe this is the bit where I this is the bit where I fall down. Because he then moves to challenging people. I'm always afraid to do this. <laughs> he confronts and challenges their idolatry. And having revealed the identity of the unknown God, he says, do you know, here is the only course of action that is now open to you. Repent. God commands all people everywhere to repent What Paul does, he urges them, listen, turn about. Turn around from your false worship and let's start engaging in true worship. Turn around from your false gods and let's get into relationship with the one true God. And that was provocative to these people. And Paul didn't stop there. He then introduces two more thoughts and truths that would have snagged their attention, that would have stimulated their thinking even further. He introduces judgment and resurrection. He says, listen, there's gonna be a common day of judgment. And again, I back off this. I'll be really honest. And I've been challenged by this this week. He says, there's a common day of judgment. And you know what? Here's how we know, because the one who's gonna judge has been raised from the dead. And Paul was prepared to address the core and key elements of Christianity and in our preaching and in our teaching and in our sharing of the faith and in our cultural engagement, we must not be afraid. We must not be reluctant to talk about these critical issues, about repentance, about judgment, about resurrection. And they're not going to be popular. Certainly one of them is incredibly unpopular. And even if we are speaking to intellectual, educated, streetwise people, we mustn't duck these mind-stretching realities. And Paul's speech had kind of reached a critical moment. He's revealed the identity of the unknown God. He said, you know now, here's your only option, repent. And you need to bear in mind that one day you are gonna be judged. And Jesus is alive and he's the one who's gonna judge. And as this reaches a critical point, and although some of his audience did seem to be listening intently and quietly, Whenever Paul mentions the resurrection of the dead, then they sneer, it says in verse 32. In other words, there's ridicule and there's rejection, but not everybody reacted so negatively. There's two other responses in here. The first is, some people want to hear more. Do you know, see what you've just been saying? It's wet our appetite. We'd like to hear you again on these things. And so there is interest and there's intrigue. But the third response to Paul's message was overwhelmingly positive. A few people and at least one woman believes Paul. And so there was affirmation and there was acceptance. And as we share the gospel, as we go as Christ's empowered witnesses, as we reach out, as we engage with our friends and our colleagues and our family members, these responses are all going to come flying at us. Some people are going to ridicule us and reject us. Some people are going to think we're rattling on about stuff they have no clue about. That's not going to be comfortable. That's not going to be easy. We're going to be misunderstood. And none of us like that. And we're going to be isolated at times and ostracized and all of that. That just goes with the territory. But also, there will be some who go, I'd like to track with you on this. I'd like to hear more. I'd like to discover more. And there will be some people who will accept the message. And Paul's visit to Athens is over. And he leaves and he heads for another city, for Corinth. But let me make just some final closing comments to take away and consider. You see, yes, 2,000 years separates then and there from here and now. But we actually find ourselves, and we, we know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We find ourselves in an increasingly pagan, secular, pluralistic, cultural context in 2015. Athens, in many respects, is not that different to Belfast. Michael O'Connell, writing at the beginning of the third millennium in his book, Changed Utterly Ireland and the New Irish Psyche, talks about the growing a la carte approach to religious belief in Ireland. so true. There are more and more alternative belief systems and worldviews present and accepted and believed in our society, and Christianity and the Christian faith is increasingly being marginalized. It's no longer at the heart of society. In fact, it hasn't been for absolutely ages, and it's progressively being pushed out to the fringes. More and more people do question and sadly dismiss the biblical story, dismiss the good news, dismiss Jesus, but it's apparent that also more and more people simply don't know it. They've grown up in a different cultural environment where church going is less and less meaningful or important. Fewer and fewer people today around us have any connection, and haven't done for years, to a local Christian church. And therefore, Paul's approach in Athens is so important for us to consider, because Paul was willing, and here's the thing, he was willing to meet and engage with people where they were, on their turf, in their world. You know the great commission, go, he he actually embraced that and took it seriously. Go make disciples, let's not sit here and invite people to come. Very few people ever come anymore to anything in a church. That's just the way it is. (laughs) And so Paul goes and he meets people on their turf, in their world, in their environments. And in that context, context, lots and lots of people we read met in the Agora, in the marketplace. And so Paul said, right, that's where I'm gonna go. That's where I'm gonna spend time. That's where I'm gonna engage with people. That's where I'm gonna dialogue with people. And the late John Stott commenting on this aspect of the story, writes, the equivalent of the agora, the marketplace will vary in different parts of the world. It may be a park, it may be a city square, it may be a street corner, a shopping mall, a marketplace, a pub, a neighborhood bar, a student cafeteria, wherever people meet when they are at leisure. Let's engage with people in their agoras. But the challenge is not simply to meet and engage. Well, it is. But the actual real challenge is to to engage at a particular level, to actually connect and converse. And then here's the bit, as I said, I struggle with 30. It's the challenge. We need to be relevant. Yes, of course we do. We need to understand people's culture. We need to understand their questions, their objections to Christianity, their alternative belief systems. But we also then need to speak into them. It's not enough just to understand them. We need to speak into them recognizing that there is gonna be different reactions. Some will be positive, some will be negative. And Paul did that, and his example in Acts seventeen is worth embracing, and about 20 years ago, I remember Andy Hickford said this about good and true gospel, your true communication into any cultural context and he said this as he wrestled with Acts 17 and I've, I've always loved this came across this 20 years ago and I've always found this incredibly helpful good communication is in the language of the receptor culture good gospel communication truly engages an audience true gospel communication will radically challenge any culture and true gospel communication will always carry with it the possibility of rejection. Now, I know that's relatively simplistic, but I find it really helpful. And so, as we leave here this morning, as I say, if you remember nothing else, please do not forget. God is not far from every single person you meet this week. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to recognize that and to help them reach out to him. And so may we engage more effectively, speak words of truth and life more appropriately and relevantly, and may we share Jesus more passionately as we reach out as his empowered witnesses. Because do you know something? If we don't, If we don't do it, who will?